farm manager Allie Hughes came from central Nebraska. Epidemiologist James Shepard came from Sussex, England. Together, they formed the core of Smoke Down Farm in Sharon, Connecticut, where they bring unto the world of beer its bittering and aromatic flower, hops. This is It Starts With Beer. One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome. For this episode, I got to meet two of the people responsible for supplying locally grown hops to dozens of Connecticut breweries. And if you're at all interested in the hop side of beer, this is the episode for you. This episode is brought to you by Back East Brewing in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Their recent taproom expansion with indoor and outdoor seating makes Back East the perfect place to enjoy excellent beers like Ice Cream Man IPA, Recoutra IPA, their award-winning Porter, a personal favorite, or any of the other delicious beers in their ever-changing lineup. Go to BackEastBrewing.com for more information. So I start off this episode talking with Allie Hughes, who has worked at Smokedown Farm since 2018, and we discussed the ins and outs of daily hop farm life and how it impacts the beer world in general. Then later, you'll hear my conversation with her boss, Dr. James Shepard, who's known for his work as an infectious disease specialist. We're talking front line of the COVID-19 crisis here. What I love about this first interview is that it's actually face-to-face, my first one since January. We started with Allie showing me a long row of 18-foot-tall Chinook hops as part of the nine acres that they have on a former dairy farm in Northwest Connecticut that Dr. Shepard purchased in October of 2014. Along with Chinook, at Smokedown, they have Cascade and Centennial, as well as uh, Y Challenger, Tahoma, Centium, and Tea Maker. Allie showed me their hops harvester, and we went into a barn that holds their pelleting machine and the Oast, this mechanism with a screen that allows for drying of the hops. She led me to a picnic table, and that's where we start with the beautiful sounds of sheep and chickens in the background, supplying some much needed ambiance. Let's listen in. We just got rid of our pigs, otherwise you would have heard them screaming and winking. That's too bad. <laughs> These things happen. So tell me a little bit about your background before we get to talking about Smoketown Farm, it's, it's okay. Uh, you're from Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your Growing up there, your interest in beer, and how you ended up here. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I'm from central Nebraska, the Sand Hills specifically. I uh, actually worked at a winery in central Nebraska. I got an internship there after college, and I worked there for about five years. I did their uh, vineyard management as well as I did their winemaking, and then I kind of wanted to change up scenery along with my wife, so I started looking for jobs, and I found Smoke Down Farm. 
Wonderful. Yeah. So, had you? Um, what was your experience with uh, beer up until this point? Or I really, I really liked beer. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, hops and grapes have similar aspects. I really didn't know a lot about hops when I got here. So. And so, when you came here and you started looking around and, and, and taking in, you know, the scene and what this was going to be about. What have you seen change over the time that, that you've been here and how has Smoke Down Farm kind of evolved? So when I first started, we didn't have the, the pelleting line. Um, basically all we had was the dryers and the oast. Um, and we've expanded, we've added varieties like Michigan Copper. Um, you know, we're expanding, we've added Cascade and we're putting in more rows of um, Chinook. And we also focused a little bit more on diversifying to where now we have honeybees, we have sheep, we have pigs, you know, so it's like, it's important as a farm to work on diversifying just to have different means of income. So I think that's been one of the biggest things that's changed since I started. Sure. So what's your pitch to, to breweries? Um, you know, why, why should a brewery uh, invest in hops that are grown locally? I think that, like like we were talking earlier, it's the terroir effect, you know, specifically of the Chinook or Cascade that's notable, where it's a little more fruity than out west, or you know, and it's less piney. Um, but also, you're supporting local farmers that are wanting to bring you a great product. And one of the upsides of Smoke Down Farm um, producing hops is that we can take the hops from the field to the dryer, to the freezer as a finished pelleted packaged product in 72 hours or less and you're not getting that out west and you're probably not getting that from a lot of farms around here. Um, so another advantage that I'd imagine would be that because the breweries are physically closed can come and visit you get to know the brewers and assistant brewers personally that there might be some um, give and take in terms of advice back and forth. Um, is that an element where you, you, you've responded to something that a brewer might say in terms of need. Uh, does that impact um, your growing cycles or anything like that? I wouldn't say our growing cycles, but uh, we're, we're doing uh, wet hops now for Woodbury Brewing and we're trying to do it for Connecticut Valley Brewing. So we haven't done wet hops here in the past, but I think that that's a great outlet um, as far as letting brewers experiment and they're coming to us and saying, hey, um, we'd love some wet hops if that's something we could work out. The tricky part to things like that is logistics. Like like we talked about earlier, you know, hops don't have a lot of time uh, as far as being wet. Uh, they're gonna start to rot. So, you know, it's just the logistics of everything. So, yeah. so um, you know, of course, IPAs are very popular and that, that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Um, has that uh, impacted the types of hops that you've been growing here? Uh, I, w I would say a little bit, yeah. They're looking for, you know, those big, bold flavors that Chinook or Challenger brings. Um, you know, Kent Falls is using our Challenger in haircuts for everybody, and it's like, as soon as you crack the can, you're like, that's Challenger hops from Smoke Down Farm, no doubt in your mind when you smell it. But, yeah. So, even if the, the shift, uh, if there was a shift in, in, in demand, for a different kind of hop. Um, how do you uh, plan ahead? Uh, is there a planning ahead? I know that it seems like it takes a few years to mature a certain um, type of hop. How does that work when you look to planning? Yeah, so specifically right now that's actually happening where we're realizing, you know, the Tahoma we're growing isn't as big of a seller as we thought it might have been. 
but Cascade is going crazy. People want as much of Cascade as you can grow, so we're cutting back our Tahoma to fill in with Cascade. So it's just a, a give and take, and it's really hard to guess what somebody is going to want two or three years from the future, you know, but I think having a bunch of different varieties where you can change your your acreage, that's that's key, I think, for us. For, for those who are not as familiar, uh, would you mind giving like a, you know, a 20,000 foot view of what this uh, a year looks like on a, on a hop farm? Yeah, so it really kicks off as soon as harvest comes to an end. We're already thinking about next season, so we're out there pruning, getting rid of any debris, we're getting rid of old coir, we're trimming the hops back, and then in November we're bringing in fertilizer which is manure from a dairy farm down the road and we're physically throwing the manure onto every single hop crown. Um, then we kind of put them to bed and in the off season I'm really focusing on sales and getting out to brewers and making sure that they have what they need from us. Um, and then we're kind of we're kind of trying to make a plan as far as the help we're going to need, the supplies we're going to need for the spring because when the buds break it's I've been on a dead run since about March. Um, so in March when the plants wake up and they start to grow, we're out there tying coir, which takes about 10 days for us to completely string the yard. Um, it takes a crew of about five people. And we are just all hands on deck. We have Dr. Shepard out there. We have his wife, Shrevy, out there. Their sons come back from uh, Scotland and the UK to help and it's just kind of a family affair plus me so um it's it's really it's it's a good time and then uh after stringing we are right on to training which you make a stop at each plant and you pick the best three to four binds and you train them around the coir and then you move on to the next top and that takes us about three weeks to get to every plant um, from there it's just uh management as far as pests or fungicide, irrigating, fertigating, you know, just making sure that the hop has everything it needs because we've already invested so much time and effort that you can't mess up at this point. It's a big nine acre garden that you want to tend. Exactly. With all the love and care that you can. Exactly. What is it about this specific location? We're in in um, uh, beautiful Sharon, Connecticut. What I, From what I'm seeing, you know, just rolling hills, um, really no civilization, uh, you know, from, from, from where I am. Is there something about the elevation, the location that makes Smoke Down, Smoke Down? Yeah, I, the elevation, it's actually really interesting. Even driving up from Torrington on a daily basis, specifically in the winter, you can see the temperature drop on the ther thermometer in my car where it's like three or five degrees. Um, so that's actually, uh, it's a bit of a challenge as far as, you know, making sure that the hops have a long enough season. Uh, so it's where some of our uh, cultivation habits have to be changed to accommodate to the, the atmosphere and temperature of Smokedown Farm. Um, you know, there was a time way back in history when there were a lot more hop, hop farms. Uh, it would just be, you know, the norm, especially in Connecticut uh, and New York. Um, do you see a time when we'll see more hop farms or do you think that 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 is a ways off? I think it might be a ways off. Um, I hope to see more hop farms in the near future. Uh, you know, originally this was hop growing country um, back pre-prohibition. 
and then it traveled out west and now it's slowly coming back east. Um, hops is something you have to get into because you love growing hops. It's hard. It's really hard work, it's expensive, but that's the case with most farming in general anyway. So I, I hope to see more hop farmers. It's great to uh, connect and, and share knowledge because growing hops, you can never have enough information. What do you, what's your sense in terms of um, younger people, and I say that people in their 20s and 30s, um, going into farming? Do you see a, a movement towards that or is that becoming uh, less and less popular? Um, speaking for New England from what I've seen, I see some, but I don't see it being passed on from generation to generation like I did in Nebraska. Just from coming from Nebraska, it's like the farm I grew up on, my grandparents owned, and then my dad took it over, and then, you know, someday my brother is going to take it over, you know? So it's like, I don't see that as much here, but that could be because I'm I'm lacking the, the connections because I'm, I'm an implant to Connecticut. But I think that farming has such a huge value as far as, you know, especially during the time of the pandemic where people are realizing the worth of a locally grown vegetable or a fruit where they can, they know where it came from and it's easily accessible to them. Because, you know, back in what March and April when you went to the grocery store, you didn't see, you didn't see meats or fruits or anything. So that it's really important to, to see people wanting to fill the, the vacancies of farming. I think yeah, there, there seems to be a movement more towards clean eating and eating locally. But unless we have that first part of the chain, mm -hmm. uh, we're, at, we're out of luck. <laughs> um, Definitely. And uh, now when it comes to uh, beer, um, how, what have you learned about beer that stuck with you, that, that's made the biggest impression on you since uh, entering into this uh, endeavor? So my biggest thing was when I first started growing hops, I wanted to taste the hops in my beer. So where do you start? You start at IPAs. And slowly, I think one thing I've really noticed, uh, specifically me and my wife, is that your taste buds evolve and change the more you become accustomed to craft beer. Uh, that's my personal opinion. It's like, I really loved IPAs, still love IPAs, but now I'm like, maybe I want a nice pale ale or a lager where you can really appreciate the nuances of the beer rather than just a, a big, bold IPA, you know? Right, and I'm, and I'm noticing a lot of people who are getting into beer for the first time, their entry point uh, is IPAs. Um, and I wonder, you know, once you're used to extremes, whether you can dial it back and appreciate the more subtle part mm -hmm. because hops are in stouts. Hops mm -hmm. are in all beer uh, for the most part unless they're experimenting with other bittering mm -hmm. uh, devices. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. So you're, you're open to all the subtleties of it, mm -hmm. you know, as well. When you taste a beer that has one of your hops, um, can you really, have you trained your palate to be able to taste it or have you uh, or do you not taste it? You said, oh, that, that's definitely a smoke-down hop. I haven't specifically. I usually know, and I, I go look for these beers that have our hops in it, and I potentially am probably a little biased, but um, there's just something about it where, you know, you put in the hard work of it, and you just, for some reason, it just tastes better. I, I can't say that it's because it's our hops, but I hope it is. 
I'm sure it is. These are better hops. No, I, I know what you're saying. I think it's the same true with, with anybody who's who's delved into cooking, you know, or, or used any of the ingredients from their own garden. They, they, there's something special, mm -hmm. you know, about that. Um, what are you? What are the, some of the biggest misconceptions? Uh, what are some of the uh, questions that you tend to have had to answer, maybe for me, that um, that people just don't get about about hops and hop growing? Um, a lot of people don't realize that they grow 18 feet tall. Um, some people don't realize that you harvest them once. I've been asked, uh, so how many times can you pick the hops off the plants before the season's over? Um, so we bring in the hops one time, harvest them once in a year. Um, but for the most part, I think hops is a little bit of a, a hidden crop as far as how it's cultivated. So I think most of the time people are asking me the questions rather than saying, you know, oh, so this is what you do with the hops, right? Uh, one of the most no preconceptions. Yeah, they, they yeah, exactly. Right. They're like, so what is this? The, you know, we yeah. we had the the guy come in that poured the concrete for our pelleting room this season, and I took him out on the farm access road to get out, and he's like, "What are those growing on there?" And I was like, "They're hops." And he's like, "I thought they were grapes." Yes. There you go. <laughs> so, sure, yeah. sure. They're, they're, you can say, "Yeah, the hops are the grape of the beer." Right, whatever, right, exactly. Uh, well, that's yeah, that's that's interesting. Where, where do you think um, hops in general are gonna go? I mean, is this I mean, is a timely, uh, basically a timeless art uh, to, and science to doing this? But are there are there any trends in terms of uh, where, you know where do you think the future of hops is is gonna go? I don't really know where the future of hops is gonna go. I hope that you know smoke down can continue and grow, and I hope that you know more farmers join us in growing hops here in the Northeast, where you know. They really started in North America, um, you know, specifically pre-prohibition, and I, I, I can't tell you where it's going to go. I'd probably be a rich person if I knew, right? Next, I spoke with Dr. James Shepard, who not only owns the hop farm as part of 175 acres of fields and forests on Sharon Mountain, but is also an infectious disease specialist at Yale New Haven Hospital. His work with HIV and TB has brought him all over the world, including Africa and India. A Brit, Shepard named the farm Smokedown to honor his mother and uncle, who were evacuated to a Smokedown farm in Oxfordshire from London during World War II air raids. Let's listen in. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal background and experience with beer? Well, I am British. I grew up in Sussex in southern England, about 50 miles south of London, in a very ancient part of Great Britain called the Weald, which is an ancient uh, forest in the valley between the North Downs and the South Downs. So you were right in the forest? Uh, it's still largely forested, um, farmland and forest. It's a uh, um, very traditional part of southeastern England that's largely been spared development. And when I was a schoolboy, uh, there were still breweries in town and there was a brewery in the town that i grew up in called horsham and the brewery was called kingham barns and it still delivered beer by horse-drawn dray wagon 
and the barrels would be rolled off the wagon into the um, pub cellars directly using staves and planks. And we used to do that on the summer holidays and summer jobs. So it was a, it was a local, local institution. Sadly, no more. It closed. I'm not sure when, because I haven't lived in Horsham for over 40 years. But um, it's been replaced by another brewery in uh, nearby, which brews a similar range of beers that King and Barnes used to produce. At least it keeps up the tradition. Absolutely. Now, now did you uh, partake in drinking, or were you um, uh, just uh, the muscle? Uh, well, we weren't um, legally partaking in drinking, but uh, we did. King and Barnes used to brew a, a bottle of beer. Um, most of it was draft beer in barrels for pumping sure. into the into the you know ales and whatnot. Um, legendary ales, still quite well known amongst beer aficionados in Britain. Um, but they produced a beer for my school sports day, which was every summer, you know, running races and high jump and whatnot, called Festive. Sounds great. And it, it was so strong that if you had a bottle of Festive, you were definitely going to finish last in the 100 meters. <laughs> and you wouldn't care. You, yeah, <laughs> except if your parents found out. Oh, I, I imagine. So this is when you were in our equivalent of high school? Right. So um, while you were um, uh, doing that, that, that was your, your experience with beer. Did you continue to be a, a beer drinker after that? Yeah, I've always liked it, but I'm really a British beer drinker, which sure. is a different species than the American uh, modern craft brew um, uh, uh, connoisseur, because beer is an ancient um, drink in, in Northern Europe, and it's really a social lubricant. Its prime role is to give you something to do whilst you meet with the rest of your community in the pub. And so it generally tends not to be a strong experience, both taste-wise or alcohol-wise. So I'm used to more subtly hopped beers with, you know, a much lower alcohol content of about 4%, which I think is about the average for British beer. Right. You can have it over a long session. You can have several. Uh, it can warm up a little bit. It's it's okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I'm a malt head, uh, so to speak, and so I, I would prefer a bass uh, sometimes uh, than, than something so rigidly hoppy. Although, you know, uh, we certainly do appreciate our hops, which is what you ended up uh, 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 getting into. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you entered into your uh, uh, medical career and, and uh, how you came to America? Yeah. Um, so I've had a sort of, rather than a career, I would call it a series of loosely connected events. Um, I was originally a scientist, an immunologist, a cell biologist, and I came to the United States as a research fellow mm. and then decided I got sort of slightly bored with um, bench research working in a lab 
um, you know, diving deep into the inner workings of the cell, mm. um, I was sort of losing um, the, the joy of it. So I went back to medical school in, in New York City um, and got a medical training here. So I'm a fully U.S. trained physician, but a U.K. trained scientist. And I've always been interested in infectious diseases. So I specialized, subspecialized in infectious diseases after going through the whole medical training here in the United States. And that's brought you around the world, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, as an infectious disease doctor, you know, most of the um, disease and um, death caused by infections is overseas in the poorer parts of the world. So I spent um, most of my career in sub-Saharan Africa and in uh, India um, with my wife and, and raised our children in uh, Southern Africa. Um, and only came back to the United States just before we acquired the farm, so in 2014. So you could be pinging and ponging all over the world, and yet you decided to settle in a beautiful uh, farm in Connecticut. What made you settle on uh, on that area? Well, we had, um, as we lived in Nigeria, in Botswana, in, in India, always maintained a home base in Connecticut, but it was in Stonington in the southeastern corner of Connecticut. Right. And we were looking for farmland there. We really wanted to stay down there because we liked it and it was was our home really for 25 years. We'd moved around northeastern United States for my medical training, but always come back to Stonington in the summers. But we couldn't find any good farmland there. And the first really substantial good land, um, by which I mean really potentially productive ag agricultural land, without a trophy house on it that would have raised the price beyond what the land was worth for production. Um, and really, you know, the land in Connecticut is priced too high for production anyway, but mm. um, we can talk about that. <laughs> Um, this was the first place we found, um, but it happened to be about as far away from Stonington, but still in Connecticut as you could get. But it was still commutable to my um, hospital and uh, university job at Yale. So um, I, I commute from the farm to New Haven when I have to. What, what was it about a farm that you that really attracted you? Well, I've always liked farms. In England, as I told you, I grew up in a very um, old part of England that was forest and farms. Mm. I grew up surrounded by farms. If we weren't working for the brewery, we were helping the farmers get the hay back in in the, in the late summer before going back to school. And I just think it's a um, attractive and appropriate use of the land um, when done wisely. Is that been an uphill battle? No, farm farming is very easy, actually. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, I, I it's imagine. Been a, it's, it's been extraordinarily difficult. Um, as a complete amateur, I picked a crop, hops, 
which is probably one of the most complicated agricultural products there is. And so the learning curve has been so steep that we've been uh, grappling to climb it um, over the last five years. With your career, it doesn't sound like you shrink from a challenge. No, I mean, I, foolishly. Um, you know, if, if, if I had to survive on it, we would be eating grass at this point. It's <laughs> not, not really, good. <laughs> no, and they're still deep in a hole, but still the, the concept that hops are a high-value crop, um, so, you know, you can sell them for um, a good price, that they are a, a high-demand crop given the expansion in craft brewing, particularly in Connecticut, which has as you know, so many breweries per head. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be possible to actually farm and at least break even in Connecticut, given the land prices and the challenges in our state? Um, remains an open question, but it, it, it was the, the, the genesis of, of our effort. Well, I mean, we don't see a lot of farmlands. You don't see... Um, uh, you know, condos being torn down to make room for a hop fields. It 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 seems like if if the land isn't there and the will isn't there, it's just not going to get done. Uh, this isn't something that uh, people rely on. Uh, I certainly appreciate it as someone who appreciates beer, but this is I don't know. You would put it a luxury crop or something because it, it's not like. Um, you know, people will starve without it. Um, but it, it, have you learned uh, quite a bit about about uh, hops along the journey? Oh, yes, of course. Um, I mean, uh, at this point, I mean, we're the biggest hop yard. I think we're the, you know, I'm sure someone will get in contact with you if I overstate um, this, but I believe we're the second biggest hop yard in southern New England. Um, as you mentioned, well, well, our first crop went in the ground in the summer of 2015. So some of our plants, some of our rows now are quite mature. They're five years old this season, and they're looking it. Um, you know, we've 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 had a response from some of the parts of the yard, which has been very gratifying, particularly this season as we put into practice all of the things that we've learned. I mean, it's been great, and although our yields have not yet reached a level that is good for us, uh, what's been great for the brewers is that the quality has been fabulous, and the character of our Connecticut-grown hops um, high up on Sharon Mountain, one of the highest farms in Connecticut at 1,300 feet, um, on deep, deep sandy loam, um, in the northwest corner of Connecticut, really has produced some very, very interesting uh, aromas and characteristics of the hops here, even if they're relatively um, well-known varieties that you could buy in bulk from the Pacific Northwest. They have really a very strong local characteristic from us. Have you found that your expertise... um as an infectious disease consultant, uh, epidemiologist, 
Uh, is there any crossover, you know, when it comes to working with hops? Yeah, there is a great deal. It's in the disease control in the hop yard, oh, which is, think about COVID. Um, I do all the time, I'm afraid. That we all do, I think, and I spend <laughs> a lot of time um, also and was, you know, in the surge at Yale New Haven oh. a couple of months ago treating patients. So what we do in the hop yard is what really we should have done and should be doing in response to COVID. Um, we scout, we, we test, we do testing every day. Ali zooms around in the gator up and down the lanes looking for signs of fungal disease. It's an infection of the hops. And if you detect it early, i.e. if you find your COVID cases starting to surge in one part of your town or state, you can do something about it. You can spray, or in the case of COVID, you can isolate. Mm. Um, you can um, remove the infected shoots in the hop yard and spray fungicide before it gets out of hand. And so it's very much a public health response to downy mildew in the hop yard. And also, I'm a, really an HIV specialist. I have a HIV clinic in New Haven. And yeah. HIV and TB were my um, uh, specialities uh, in Africa. Um, the other concept that's key is that if you only spray one chemical on the mildew, which is infecting your hops, the mildew will develop resistance very quickly to that chemical and you will lose control of it. And so you have to mix fungicides in your tank to attack the mildew at different um, stages of its life cycle or different parts of its uh, metabolism and switch them around a bit like treating HIV with multiple antiretroviral medicines. So there's a, there's a lot of parallels. Um, and uh, again, the lastly, really, prevention is better than cure. So during the summer, Ali is out on the tractor spraying non-restricted, so we don't use, you know, um, uh, um, restricted um, pesticides or, or fungicides, um, but she sprays tank mixes when we anticipate a mildew outbreak so that we can protect the hops before the mildew actually infects them. So if we see some damp weather coming up, she'll be out there spraying. And that works much better, too. It's like a vaccination program. Exactly. But you don't have hops that are refusing to be vaccinated. I guess which we is don't a good listen, thing. Actually, we don't go out there and ask in advance. Maybe right. that's what we should do in America. If you could figure this out, and I'm glad that you're in a position to do that, um, it would be nice to know that beer had something to do with saving our planet. There you go. I'll raise a glass to that. My thanks to Allie Hughes and James Shepard for their time and expertise. You can go to smokedownfarmhops.com for more information. For more about me, go to beersnobrights.com. Interested in the topic? 
know someone I should interview, reach out. Send me an email. I'm at beer.snob at yahoo.com. Until next time, sip well. Thank you.